The following was recorded by John Loth and is intended for educational purposes. This recording is not to be sold or distributed for sale. If you wish to support the work and publishing of these recordings, please visit the John Loth Patreon page. If you come across these recordings anywhere else without my expressed support and find that they are requesting donations for presenting this work to you, you will not be supporting the creator by doing so. This is just a friendly warning to anyone who may fall prey to predatory practices I have come across recently. The Grand Chessboard by Zbigniew Brzezinski Chapter 7 A Geostrategy for Eurasia The point of departure for the needed policy has to be hard-nosed recognition of the three unprecedented conditions that currently define the geopolitical state of world affairs. For the first time in history, one, a single state is a truly global power, two, a non-Eurasian state is globally the preeminent state, and three, the globe's central arena, Eurasia, is dominated by a non-Eurasian power. However, a comprehensive and integrated geostrategy for Eurasia must also be based on recognition of the limits of America's effective power and the inevitable attrition over time of its scope. As noted earlier, the very scale and diversity of Eurasia, as well as the potential power of some of its states, limit the depth of American influence and the degree of control over the course of events. This condition places a premium on geostrategic insight and on the deliberately selective deployment of America's resources on the huge Eurasian chessboard. And since America's unprecedented power is bound to diminish over time, the priority must be to manage the rise of other regional powers in ways that do not threaten America's global primacy. As in jest, American global planners must think several moves ahead, anticipating possible countermoves. A sustainable geostrategy must therefore distinguish between the short-run perspective, the next five or so years, the middle term, up to 20 or so years, and the long run, beyond 20 years. Moreover, these phases must be viewed not as watertight compartments, but as part of a continuum. The first phase must gradually and consistently lead to the second. Indeed, be deliberately pointed toward it, and the second must then lead subsequently into the third. In the short run, it is in America's interest to consolidate and perpetuate the prevailing geopolitical pluralism on the map of Eurasia. That puts a premium on maneuver and manipulation in order to prevent the emergence of a hostile coalition that could eventually seek to challenge America's primacy, not to mention the remote possibility of any one particular state seeking to do so. By the middle term, the foregoing should gradually yield to a greater emphasis on the emergence of increasingly important but strategically compatible partners who, prompted by American leadership, might help to shape a more cooperative trans-Eurasian security system. Eventually, in the much longer run still, the foregoing could phase into a global core of genuinely shared political responsibility. The most immediate task is to make certain that no state or combination of states gains the capacity to expel the United States from Eurasia 
or even to diminish significantly its decisive arbitrating role. However, the consolidation of transcontinental geopolitical pluralism should not be viewed as an end in itself, but only as a means to achieve the middle-term goal of shaping genuine strategic partnerships in the key regions of Eurasia. It is unlikely that democratic America will wish to be permanently engaged in the difficult, absorbing, and costly task of managing Eurasia by constant manipulation and maneuver, backed by American military resources, in order to prevent regional domination by any one power. The first phase must, therefore, logically and deliberately lead into the second one in which a benign American hegemony still discourages others from posing a challenge, not only by making the costs of the challenge too high, but also by not threatening the vital interests of Eurasia's potential regional aspirants. What that requires specifically as the middle-term goal is the fostering of genuine partnerships, predominant among them those with a more united and politically defined Europe and with a regionally preeminent China as well as with, one hopes, a post-imperial and Europe-oriented Russia, and, on the southern fringe of Eurasia, with a regionally stabilizing and democratic India. But it will be the success or failure of the effort to forge broader strategic relationships with Europe and China, respectively, that will shape the defining context for Russia's role, either positive or negative. It follows that a wider Europe and an enlarged NATO will serve well both the short-term and the longer-term goals of U.S. policy. A larger Europe will expand the range of American influence and, through the admission of new Central European members, also increase in the European Councils the number of states with a pro-American proclivity without simultaneously creating a Europe politically so integrated that it could soon challenge the United States on geopolitical matters of high importance to America elsewhere, particularly in the Middle East. A politically defined Europe is also essential to the progressive assimilation of Russia into a system of global cooperation. Admittedly, America cannot on its own generate a more united Europe. That is up to the Europeans especially the French and the Germans. But America can obstruct the emergence of a more united Europe, and that could prove calamitous for stability in Eurasia, and thus also for America's own interests. Indeed, unless Europe becomes more united, it is likely to become more disunited again. Accordingly, as stated earlier, it is vital that America work closely with both France and Germany in seeking a Europe that is politically viable, a Europe that remains linked to the United States, and a Europe that widens the scope of the cooperative democratic international system. Making a choice between France and Germany is not the issue. Without either France or Germany, there will be no Europe, and without Europe, there will be no trans-Eurasian system. In practical terms, the foregoing will require gradual accommodation to a shared leadership in NATO greater acceptance of France's concerns for a European role not only in Africa but also in the Middle East, and continued support for the eastward expansion of the EU, even as the EU becomes a more politically and economically assertive global player. A transatlantic free trade agreement already advocated by a number of prominent Atlantic leaders 
could also mitigate the risk of growing economic rivalry between a more united EU and the United States. In any case, the EU's eventual success in burying the centuries-old European nationalist antagonisms, with their globally disruptive effects, would be well worth some gradual diminution in America's decisive role as Eurasia's current arbiter. The enlargement of NATO and the EU would serve to reinvigorate Europe's own waning sense of a larger vocation, while consolidating, to the benefit of both America and Europe, the democratic gains won through the successful termination of the Cold War. At stake in this effort is nothing less than America's long-range relationship with Europe itself. A new Europe is still taking shape, and if that new Europe is to remain geopolitically a part of the Euro-Atlantic space, the expansion of NATO is essential. By the same token, a failure to widen NATO, now that a commitment has been made, would shatter the concept of an expanding Europe and demoralize the Central Europeans. It could even reignite currently dormant or dying Russian geopolitical aspirations in Central Europe. Indeed, the failure of the American-led effort to expand NATO could reawaken even more ambitious Russian desires. It is not yet evident, and the historical record is strongly to the contrary, that the Russian political elite shares Europe's desire for a strong and enduring American political and military presence. Therefore, while the fostering of an increasingly cooperative relationship with Russia is clearly desirable, it is important for America to send a clear message about its global priorities. If a choice has to be made between the larger Euro-Atlantic system and a better relationship with Russia, the former has to rank incomparably higher to America. For that reason, any accommodation with Russia on the issue of NATO enlargement should not entail an outcome that has the effect of making Russia a de facto decision-making member of the alliance, thereby diluting NATO's special Euro-Atlantic character while simultaneously relegating its newly admitted members to second-class status. That would create opportunities for Russia to resume not only the effort to regain a sphere of influence in Central Europe, but to use its presence within NATO to play on any American-European disagreements in order to reduce the American role in European affairs. It is also crucial that, as Central Europe enters NATO, any new security assurances to Russia regarding the region be truly reciprocal and thus mutually reassuring. Restrictions on the deployment of NATO troops and nuclear weapons on the soil of new members can be an important factor in allaying legitimate Russian concerns. But these should be matched by symmetrical Russian assurances regarding the demilitarization of the potentially strategically menacing salient of Kaliningrad and by limits on major troop deployments near the borders of the prospective new members of NATO and the EU. While all of Russia's newly independent Western neighbors are anxious to have a stable and cooperative relationship with Russia, the fact is that they continue to fear it for historically understandable reasons. Hence, the emergence of an equitable NATO-EU accommodation with Russia would be welcomed by all Europeans as a signal 
that Russia is finally making the much-desired post-imperial choice in favor of Europe. That choice could pave the way for a wider effort to enhance Russia's status and esteem. Formal membership in the G7, as well as the upgrading of the policy-making machinery of the OSCE, within which a special security committee composed of America, Russia, and several key European countries could be established and would create opportunities for constructive Russian engagement in shaping both the political and security dimensions of Europe. Coupled with the ongoing Western financial assistance to Russia, along with the development of much more ambitious schemes for linking Russia more closely to Europe through new highway and railroad networks, the process of giving substance to a Russian choice in favor of Europe could move forward significantly. Russia's long-term role in Eurasia will depend largely on the historic choice that Russia has to make, perhaps still in the course of this decade, regarding its own self-definition. Even with Europe and China increasing the radius of their respective regional influence, Russia will remain in charge of the world's largest single piece of real estate. It spans ten time zones, and it's territorially twice as large as either the United States or China, dwarfing in that regard even an enlarged Europe. Hence, territorial deprivation is not Russia's central problem. Rather, the huge Russia has to face squarely and draw the proper implications from the fact that both Europe and China are already economically more powerful and that China is also threatening to outpace Russia on the road to social modernization. In these circumstances, it should become more evident to the Russian political elite that Russia's first priority is to modernize itself rather than to engage in a futile effort to regain its former status as a global power. Given the enormous size and diversity of the country, a decentralized political system based on the free market would be more likely to unleash the creative potential of both the Russian people and the country's vast natural resources. In turn, such a more decentralized Russia would be less susceptible to imperial mobilization. A loosely confederated Russia, composed of a European Russia, a Siberian Republic, and a Far Eastern Republic, would also find it easier to cultivate closer economic relations with Europe, with the new state of Central Asia, and with the Orient, which would thereby accelerate Russia's own development. Each of the three confederated entities would also be more able to tap local creative potential, stifled for centuries by Moscow's heavy bureaucratic hand. A clear choice by Russia in favor of the European option over the imperial one will be more likely if America successfully pursues the second imperative strand of its strategy toward Russia, namely, reinforcing the prevailing geopolitical pluralism in the post-Soviet space. Such reinforcement will serve to discourage any imperial temptations. A post-imperial and Europe-oriented Russia should actually view American efforts to that end as helpful in consolidating regional stability and in reducing the possibility of conflicts along its new, potentially unstable, southern frontiers. But the policy of consolidating geopolitical pluralism should not be conditioned on the existence of a good relationship with Russia. Rather, it is also important insurance in case such a good relationship fails to develop, as it creates impediments to the reemergence of any truly threatening Russian imperial policy.
It follows that political and economic support for the key newly independent states is an integral part of a broader strategy for Eurasia. The consolidation of a sovereign Ukraine, which, in the meantime, redefines itself as a central European state and engages in closer integration with Central Europe, is a critically important component of such a policy, as is the fostering of a close relationship with such strategically pivotal states as Azerbaijan and Uzbekistan, in addition to the more generalized effort to open up Central Asia, in spite of Russian impediments, to the global economy. Large-scale international investment in an increasingly accessible Caspian Central Asian region would not only help to consolidate the independence of its new countries, but in the long run would also benefit a post-imperial and democratic Russia. The tapping of the region's energy and mineral resources would generate prosperity, prompting a greater sense of stability and security in the area, while perhaps also reducing the risks of Balkan-type conflicts. The benefits of accelerated regional development, funded by external investment, would also radiate to the adjoining Russian provinces, which tend to be economically underdeveloped. Moreover, once the region's new ruling elites come to realize that Russia acquiesces in the region's integration into the global economy, they will become less fearful of the political consequences of close economic relations with Russia. In time, a non-imperial Russia could thus gain acceptance as the region's preeminent economic partner, even though no longer its imperial ruler. To promote a stable and independent Southern Caucasus and Central Asia, America must be careful not to alienate Turkey and should explore whether an improvement in American-Iranian relations is feasible. A Turkey that feels that it is an outcast from Europe, which it has been seeking to join, will become a more Islamic Turkey, more likely to veto the enlargement of NATO out of spite and less likely to cooperate with the West in seeking both to stabilize and integrate a secular Central Asia into the world community. Accordingly, America should use its influence in Europe to encourage Turkey's eventual admission to the EU and should make a point of treating Turkey as a European state provided internal Turkish politics do not take a dramatic turn in the Islamist direction. Regular consultations with Ankara regarding the future of the Caspian Sea Basin and Central Asia would foster in Turkey a sense of strategic partnership with the United States. America should also strongly support Turkish aspirations to have a pipeline from Baku and Azerbaijan to Sehan on the Turkish Mediterranean coast serve as major outlet for the Caspian Sea Basin energy sources. In addition, it is not in America's interest to perpetuate American-Iranian hostility. Any eventual reconciliation should be based on the recognition of a mutual strategic interest in stabilizing what currently is a very volatile regional environment for Iran. Admittedly, any such reconciliation must be pursued by both sides and is not a favor granted by one to the other. A strong, even religiously motivated, but not fanatically anti-Western Iran, is in the U.S. interest, and ultimately even the Iranian political elite may recognize that reality. In the meantime, American long-range interests in Eurasia would be better served by abandoning existing U.S. objections to closer Turkish-Iranian economic cooperation.
especially in the construction of new pipelines, and also to the construction of other links between Iran, Azerbaijan, and Turkmenistan. Long-term American participation in the financing of such projects would in fact also be in the American interest. India's potential role needs also to be highlighted, although it is currently a relatively passive player on the Eurasian scene. India is contained geopolitically by the Chinese-Pakistani coalition, while a weak Russia cannot offer it the political support once provided by the Soviet Union. However, the survival of its democracy is of importance in that it refutes better than volumes of academic debate the notion that human rights and democracy are purely a parochial Western manifestation. However, the survival of its democracy is of importance in that it refutes, better than volumes of academic debate, the notion that human rights and democracy are purely a parochial Western manifestation. India proves that the anti-democratic Asian values propagated by spokesmen from Singapore to China are simply anti-democratic, but not necessarily characteristic of Asia. India's failure, by the same token, would be a blow to the prospects for democracy and would remove from the scene a power that contributes to greater balance on the Asian scene, especially given China's rise to geopolitical preeminence. It follows that a progressive engagement of India in discussions pertaining to regional stability, especially regarding the future of Central Asia, is becoming timely, not to mention the promotion of more directly bilateral connections between American and Indian defense communities. Geopolitical pluralism in Eurasia as a whole will neither be attainable nor stable without a deepening strategic understanding between America and China. It follows that a policy of engaging China in a serious strategic dialogue, eventually perhaps in a three-way effort that involves Japan as well, is the necessary first step in enhancing China's interest in an accommodation with America that reflects the several geopolitical interests, especially in Northeast Asia and in Central Asia. The two countries, in fact, share in common. It also behooves America to eliminate any uncertainties regarding America's own commitment to the one-China policy, lest the Taiwan issue fester and worsen, especially after China's absorption of Hong Kong. By the same token, it is in China's own interest to make the absorption a successful demonstration of the principle that even a greater China can tolerate and safeguard increased diversity in its internal political arrangements. While, as argued earlier in Chapter 4 and 6, any would-be Chinese-Russian-Iranian coalition against America is unlikely to gel beyond some occasional tactical posturing. It is important for the United States to deal with China in a fashion that does not drive Beijing in that direction. In any such anti-hegemonic alliance, China would be the linchpin. It would be the strongest, the most dynamic, and thus the leading component. Such a coalition could only emerge around a disaffected, frustrated, and hostile China. Neither Russia nor Iran has the wherewithal to be the central magnet for such a coalition. An American-Chinese strategic dialogue regarding the areas that both countries desire to see free of domination by other aspiring hegemons is therefore imperative. But to make progress, the dialogue should be sustained and serious.
In the course of such communication, more contentious issues pertaining to Taiwan and even to human rights could then be addressed more persuasively. Indeed, the point can be made quite credibly that the issue of China's internal liberalization is not a purely domestic Chinese affair, since only a democratizing and prosperous China has any prospect of peacefully enticing Taiwan. Any attempt at forcible reunification would not only place the American-Chinese relationship in jeopardy, but would inevitably generate adverse consequences for China's capacity to attract foreign capital and sustain its development. China's own aspirations to regional preeminence and global status would thereby be victimized. Although China is emerging as a regionally dominant power, it is not likely to become a global one for a long time to come for reasons stated in Chapter 6. And paranoic fears of China as a global power are breeding megalomania in China, while perhaps also becoming the source of a self-fulfilling prophecy of intensified American-Chinese hostility. Accordingly, China should be neither contained nor appropriated. It should be treated with respect as the world's largest developing state, and, so far at least, a rather successful one. Its geopolitical role, not only in the Far East, but in Eurasia as a whole, is likely to grow as well. Hence, it would make sense to co-opt China into the G7 annual summit of the world's leading countries, especially since Russia's inclusion has widened the summit's focus from economics to politics. As China becomes more integrated into the world system, and hence less able and less inclined to exploit its regional primacy in a politically obtuse fashion, it also follows that a de facto emergence of a Chinese sphere of deference in areas of historic interest to China is likely to be part of the emerging Eurasian structure of geopolitical accommodation. Whether a united Korea will oscillate toward such a sphere depends much on the degree of Japanese-Korean reconciliation, which America should more actively encourage. But in any case, the reunification of Korea without an accommodation with China is unlikely. A greater China at some point will inevitably press for resolution of the issue of Taiwan. But the degree of China's inclusion in an increasingly binding set of international economic and political links may also have a positive impact on the nature of Chinese domestic politics. If China's absorption of Hong Kong proves not to be repressive, Deng's formula for Taiwan of one country, two systems can become redefined as one country, several systems. That might make reunification more acceptable to the parties concerned which again reinforces the point that without some political evolution of China itself, a peaceful reconstitution of one China will not be possible. In any case, for historic as well as geopolitical reasons, China should consider America its natural ally. Unlike Japan or Russia, America has never had any territorial designs on China. And, unlike Great Britain, it never humiliated China. Moreover, without a viable strategic consensus with America, China is not likely to be able to keep attracting the massive foreign investment so necessary to its economic growth, and thus also to its attainment of regional preeminence. For the same reason, 
Without an American Chinese, strategic accommodation as the eastern anchor of America's involvement in Eurasia, America will not have a geostrategy for mainland Asia. And without a geostrategy for mainland Asia, America will not have a geostrategy for Eurasia. Thus, for America, Chinese regional power, co-opted into a wider framework of international cooperation, can be a vitally important geostrategic asset. In that regard, co-equally important with Europe and more weighty than Japan, in assuring Eurasia's stability. However, unlike the European situation, a democratic bridgehead on the eastern mainland will not emerge soon. That makes it all the more important that America's efforts to nurture a deepening strategic relationship with China be based on the unambiguous acknowledgement that a democratic and economically successful Japan is America's premier Pacific and key global partner. Although Japan cannot become a dominant Asian regional power, given the strong regional aversion it evokes, it can become a leading international one. Tokyo can carve out a globally influential role by cooperating closely with the United States regarding what might be called the new agenda of global concerns, while avoiding any futile and potentially counterproductive effort to become a regional power itself. The task of American statemanship should hence be to steer Japan in that direction. An American-Japanese free trade agreement creating a common economic space would fortify the connection and promote the goal and hence its utility should be jointly examined. It is through a close political relationship with Japan that America will more safely be able to accommodate China's regional aspirations, while opposing its more arbitrary manifestations. Only on that basis can an intricate three-way accommodation, one that involves America's global power, China's regional preeminence, and Japan's international leadership be contrived. However, that broad geostrategic accommodation could be undermined by any unwise expansion of American-Japanese military cooperation. Japan's central role should not be that of America's unsinkable aircraft carrier in the Far East, nor should it be America's principal Asian military partner or a potential Asian regional power. Misguided efforts to promote any of the foregoing would serve to cut America off from the Asian mainland. To vitate the prospects for reaching a strategic consensus with China, and thus to frustrate America's capacity to consolidate stable geopolitical pluralism throughout Eurasia.